0: Uh, I'll, I'll explain why we're reading some of this We're not going to read the whole chapter But we'll read a little bit of it to start And uh, you'll, you'll know why as we move in um, It's a long one um, We'll be here in our Sunday night reading through the Psalms in about 2019 Because we're doing a Psalm a night And we're on 45 tonight So we got another 80 weeks maybe to get to this one Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And then you're going to have this repetitive phrase. For His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who by understanding made the heavens for His steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the water above the earth, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outreached arm, outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever, to him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. I'll stop right there because it just continues on. It's very repetitive. I mean, I wonder what the message is. <laughs> right? His steadfast love endures forever. Let's thank him for that. Anybody have a, a special prayer request this morning that we can mention in prayer before we jump into our discussion today? Anything going on? Yeah. He's in Pittsburgh today? Okay. All right. Let's pray for him as he travels. Anybody else? All right. Father, we thank you for just a beautiful morning and thank you for the risen Christ who gives us purpose and meaning on a day like this to rise from our sleep to excitedly come to church where we uh, are ready to sing your praises. And your steadfast love was most seen for us at the cross of Christ, uh, where you sent your own son to pay our penalty for sin, making it possible for us to, by faith, having a relationship with you. And I feel genuinely sorry for those who are golfing or shopping or sleeping or brunching. Do not prioritize you on this day because they don't have a relationship with you. I feel pity and sadness for them because of what they are missing through Christ. I pray even for some of our own people who are connected to our ministry that they might might recognize the, the great blessing that it is to gather with one another. We pray for Matt and his travels today, that you would protect him, bring him home safely. We pray for all those who will be attending our services today, that you might bless and strengthen our faith as we discuss all kinds of different things throughout the day. May our focus and, and attention be solely on Christ, and he is so worthy of our love and our praise, and we honor him and pray that you would um, even use the children's classes as, as we hear them singing, that you would you would use those classes to strengthen the faith of these little ones, maybe bringing some of them to Christ and it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You got your sheet, right? Uh, you got your worksheet um, and so I'm a little bit uh, I'm a little bit um, uh, feeling sorry in that I hope we're doing this the right way. We're on lesson 10 of our study, and there's so many different ways we could approach it. I have several materials that I'm using. Uh, to gather all of this information together and, and, and trying to be selective in, in what would be encouraging and what would be helpful versus just a lot of minutia. Um, and so I hope we're doing this okay. I hope you're being blessed. And, and there's lessons that we glean from these things that are, that are so helpful to us. I'm struck by the fact that we, as a, as a, Christ, as a group of Christians, are still, are still involved in church history. And it makes me wonder... what will be written about this period of the church should the Lord not return for another 150, 200 years. And I just, I I don't think American Christianity bears much resemblance at all to historical Christianity in in the greater sense. Cultural American Christianity is so shallow and so uh, culturally uh, savvy. Um, You know, what will mark the American church in a 100 years. Um, I, don't know, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Wh- what are your thoughts on that? What will, what will, um, what will historians write about this period, n- you know, 1950s to, let's say, 2050? And, and we're not there yet, of course. But what, what, is, what is the prevailing um, characteristics of the church in America today? Now, do you agree with me? Is it a shallow... Is it a shallow, f- almost false? Qu- what, do, what do you think? Okay. I, I I can I can agree. I mean, as far as you mean back then, as far as what we've been discussing, or yeah, yeah, there doesn't seem to be a. It, it doesn't. It certainly is missing out on the claims of Christ that you have to take up your cross and follow Him and deny yourself and and the struggle and the suffering and the persecution. I mean, it's all very. Uh, all of that is very non-existent in our culture. It seems to be very. It's very easy to be a Christian in America. Very easy. Um, and and as far as as far as the church. Uh, they seem to, and maybe maybe this is just my perspective. They seem to be catering to that ease. Uh, they seem to be. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't want to speak for everybody. Is, do you agree with that or, or no? I'm just kind of introducing our subject today, but. that would be that would be yeah more liberal quote christianity the invisible church invisible right the invisible church sure okay historians might yeah a need okay yeah sure yeah yeah at least godly principles certainly were and i think part of all of that, too, is the busyness and distraction that American Christianity deals with, too. Um, it's interesting. I've go ahead. Okay. A Catholic baptism, or, yeah. Yeah. Themselves, even to the Catholic Church. Yeah. Well, in a sense, then, American Christianity is really marked. Well, Roman Catholicism has always been marked by tradition and ceremony, and that's that's what is being demonstrated there, right? It's the tradition. We, we're doing this because we think this will secure our child's. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. hmm Yeah, it's a doctrine known as easy believism. You just pray this prayer and this is why it's my suggestion that you never like repeat after me prayer when you try to lead someone to Christ because I, I tell I tell we can you can do it with you can manipulate people so easily. Like you could just start talking about hell and people become very scared. You say, Do you want to avoid it? Know, then run to Tim Hortons and buy a box. Of don't, you could almost say anything, and they would be willing to do whatever it is you said to soothe that fear, which is a God-given fear, but there's, you're soothing that fear by doing something easy, and then there's no expectations afterwards. Right? I just sent something to Dave and Derek yesterday that I saw on my Twitter feed that said, uh, Pastor, if, if unconverted members are leaving your church... It's a sign of life, not death, as you preach the gospel, right? If you're preaching the true gospel, which I believe we are, (laughs) I hope you would think we are, uh, then people who have maybe been a part of the church like you're talking about leave because the gospel not only is, the gospel is not only for conversion, the gospel is for life, right? The gospel is for the rest of our lives. It, It has bearing on everything we do, and so when we preach that type of gospel, people say, whoa, 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 and the church starts shrinking, the tendency is to either say, what are we doing wrong, or how can we change this to, to build this group, right? So I think, I think that's exactly right. We have another comment. Sure, and it happened over and over in the scripture, especially when the Lord is preaching. You'd think that would be... Leah had an interesting thought we were watching the football game last night. I don't know if any of you saw the football game on TV. you got these 100,000 people all dressed in white, and she said, I wonder what people around the world think when they see an event like this, right? And they have soccer games all over the world, but it's like, what do they think? The blimp is up there, and you got these beautifully lit state what do they think about that and it made me wonder well what do they think about when they think about american christianity um where 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 it almost has become a production um or a business and i just i just feel like american christianity is kind of out here and and like it, it is totally different than anything we're reading and studying about It certainly seems that way to me but Anyway, what we're doing today, and maybe this is the wrong way to do it, so I apologize for that, is I want to look at leaders of the imperial church age today, and then next week I want to talk about some of the uh, areas of uh, concern, like especially about baptism and communion and then another council decision. But basically today I just want to look at some people in that time frame, really heroes of the faith who did some pretty impressive things, and as we walk through it, uh, again, I don't want it to just be information. I want us to grasp uh, some real good applications out of this. So we start with um, Athanasius of Alexandria. Uh, and I put a couple of his quotes at the top of uh, the page for us that are just very in- inspiring and encouraging. Speaking of Jesus, he became what we are so that he might make us what he is. Uh, and then his... his uh, Athanasius was a hero of the incarnation and a, and a real champion of uh, the deity and humanity of Christ. And so here's another thing he says. The results of the incarnation of the Savior are such and so many that anyone attempting to enumerate them should be compared to a person looking upon the vastness of the sea and attempting to count its waves. In other words, there's so many blessings that come from the incarnation of Christ that it's just impossible to calculate. So I put a bunch of dots on the page for you to just kind of uh, write what you want. This is just kind of an a overview of his life, and then we'll get to the, the, the real uh, heart of his, uh, his, uh, the challenges that he faced. But some of the important things for us to remember are the, is the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. Remember, the Council of Nicaea was gathered uh, by Constantinople, the emperor of Rome, for the purpose of discussing what doctrine? Okay, The purpose of it was to study and discuss and make a decision on the doctrine of Arianism. Arianism is a false doctrine that taught what? If this was my Bible class, I'd be, I'd be calling on people, especially those who sit in the front seat. What is Arianism? <coughs> That's correct. There was, a, there was when he was not. Not there was a time when he was not, but there was when he was not. Basically, the thing, if, if it's difficult for you to remember these types of things, was Jesus a created being or not? So that's the discussion, that they're coming together. So Constantinople blows the horns, sends out the telegrams. However, he gathers all the bishops together at Nicaea, where they make this decision. And remember that they came to the conclusion that that was a false doctrine, and they banished all the bishops who wouldn't sign. I think there were two of them. But then they reversed that decision a few years later when Alexander, that's a little strange because Alexander was the bishop of Alexandria as well, and he was the one who was versus Arius on that matter. And when Arius was, remember we we ended this two weeks ago, Arius was going to be brought back in and, and not banished, but the only way he could be brought back in was, to, was the bishop who banished him had to allow it, and he said, absolutely not. We're not going to allow that. And so they banished Alexander instead, and they bring Arius in. They're going to have a big party for him, and he died the night before the party. <laughs> I just love that part. I mean, I'm not happy that he died, but <laughs> I just think the sovereignty of God in that is so neat. You're going to have a big party for this heretic? And he's a goner. Um, and sad to say, probably in hell. So anyway, Alexander, uh, his his clerk or his assistant was Athanasius. Athanasius was present at that council. And again, that council is something that all Christians should know about and remember, uh, because what was at stake was nothing less than the nature of Christ. Is a potential disastrous turning point for all of Christianity. Imagine if they had, and they, they just because they made the decision. For the for the correct doctrine, Arianism kept rearing its head for hundreds of years after that. In fact, it still rears its head today. The idea of the characteristic and nature of man. Well, uh, Alexander or Athanasius of Alexandria was known by his enemies as the Black Dwarf. Now he's from Africa. Many believe he was dark skinned as well as short, and he became the central figure uh, in this uh, controversy. In early years, he was associated with another uh, monastical uh, person named Paul the Hermit. I just love these names, you know, Paul the Hermit. I mean, I- it's like what would we have? Derek the Wise, Barbara the Good. I, I you know, I think you know what, what what would your name be? <laughs> I think we should go back to that, right? Uh, of course, Tony the Magician would be banished because of the. <laughs> the I know your magic is just. Anyway, Alex- uh, Athanasius. I hope I don't keep getting those Athanasius was in very close contact with all the monks that were part of Egypt. Remember this, this whole monastical group that said, we're going to separate from the culture. Did you just give Stephanie a name? Is that what you just did? What, what was your name? Come on. <laughs> we better not hear. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> let's. Move on. <laughs> John the Studley, okay. I think you would be banished as a heretic. <laughs> is he going to demand that you call him that around the home now? <laughs> call him at work. Uh, yeah, can I talk to John this suddenly? <laughs> <What? laughs> Derek the Dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he, he spent much time with those monks out in the desert, which is going to be important because he's going to be banished over and over and over and over again. And he learned great discipline, First Timothy 4. Verse 7 tells us that, that uh, bodily exercise profits a little, but godly uh, exercise profits not only now but in the life to come. And he was, a very, he was one of the most feared opponents of Arianism. And we should praise God for the black dwarf who upheld this doctrine of Christ. Now, the reason he was feared was not because of his logical argument or his eloquence or his um, uh, ability to handle speech and debate. But it was because of his fiery conviction and his unshakable passion and faith in this nature and doctrine of Christ. He believed that the incarnation of Christ was the central aspect of all of human history and Arianism was a threat to that. So in 328, I think I have that date on, on our sheet, in 328, Alexander died. Remember Alexander? It was in, the, in the Council of Nicaea, it was basically Alexander versus Arius and all of their teams, and then Athanasius was the secretary. So against his wishes, he then moved up and became the bishop of Alexandria, and it was that same year that Constantine said Arius could return. And so Eusebius of Nicomedia, this guy is a, this guy is a disaster. And We talked about him before. He's the one who was a very good friend of Constantine and also... Uh, he he was he was behind the scenes trying to secure that Athanasius would would come to demise, okay. Because he was a believer in Arianism, he was a believer in this idea that um, that uh, Christ was not uh, God; he was a created being. So, how do you think Eusebius of Nicomedia? What what steps do you take to secure the downfall of someone like Athanasius, who is a very respected, fiery? champion of the true doctrine of Christ what do you do to try to secure his downfall what do you, what, you're Eusebius of Nicomedia what, do you, what types of things are you going to attempt to do to destroy this person ok bye falsely accusing you know what he was falsely accused of probably not but <laughs> you know what he was falsely accused of yeah, the black dwarf. Yeah, yeah, a short, dark-skinned, powerful, fiery champion of this faith. I mean, this guy's a hero. They said that he was a magician, right? Not like we're talking you, but a dark, the dark arts. That he was a tyrant over his flock. And I don't, I, I don't record this story, just be, but it is a fantastic story. They also accused him. This was the top one. Of killing a man by the name of Arsenius and chopping off that guy's hand to use in his magical dark art ceremonies. He's not only a tyrant and a magician, he's a murderer and he he, he actually uh, dismembered his victim so he could call upon the dark demons in his magic. Well this was enough to have him called by Constantine to a synod. A synod was just a gathering of other bishops, to answer these charges. You're going to love Athanasius. He walked in to these charges, and he had with him a person covered by a cloak. And when the charges were brought, he took the cloak off of the man's head to reveal Arsenius, the guy he supposedly murdered. And all of the people said, well, you maybe didn't kill him, but we, we know you chopped off his hand. He pulled the cloak back, and there was a hand. Well, you must have chopped. This is, this is what I read. You must have chopped off his other hand. He pulls it off, and Athanasius, just laughter starts erupting, and he says, who did you think Arsenius was, a monster with three hands? This guy is impressive. So laughter erupts, and the charges are dropped. But it, this, this is the beginning of a long road of accusations and banishment and trial and persecution, because after this, when he was freed from these accusations, he demanded an audience of Constantine. But Eusebius of Nicomedia was like in charge, kind of in charge of allowing, and he did not allow that. He said, "No, you're not going to, you're not going to come." So, so when Constantine was out riding his horse, Athanasius jumped out, grabbed the horse by the bridle, and said, "I demand to have an audience with you." And this convinced Constantine that this guy was a fiery and impulsive potentially dangerous person, and he was banished. The idea of of uh, this banishment, is just it just blows me away. That I mean, so they're banished out to the far reaches of the wilderness, and he goes out to live with his monks in Egypt. Constantine died, and his son said, well, all the banished bishops can come back. <laughs> so he did, he came back to Alexandria. But this began this long period of, Banishment and struggle, and a group of Arians said that, you know, he was banished. He's not going to be our bishop. Gregory is our bishop. And Gregory was a guy who came in and took the church buildings by force, and all this disturbance and violence was blamed on Athanasius, so he was smuggled out of port to Rome. It's just, just crazy. He returned because Gregory was screwing everything up, and for about ten years in Alexandria he was able to serve as the bishop. But by this time, another son of Constantine, Constantinus, became the emperor, and he began to unleash pro-Aryan views. Um, Remember, Arianism can kind of sound like uh, Hitler's uh, belief. That's not what we're talking about here. Don't get those things confused. And so he presented this document that had to be signed or less uh, that was pro-Aryan, like you believe that Christ was a created being and those who didn't sign were banished again. And Constantin- Constantinus knew that Athanasius was a very popular bishop, and so he wanted him removed without banishing him. So <laughs> he, said, uh, he sent a correspondence to Al- Athanasius in Alexandria saying, your, your request for an audience with the emperor has been granted. Well, he had never asked for a, an audience with the emperor. And so he sent back politely, well, there must be some mistake. I never asked for an audience. And so he uh, stayed there. He was ordered then to leave the city, um, and Athanasius produced another edict that he had been sent that allowed him to stay there in Alexandria. There must be some mistake. So while celebrating communion with his flock in Alexandria, the building was surrounded by armed soldiers who burst in to arrest him and take him away. And at that very moment, Athanasius led his congregation in the singing of Psalm 136. It's pretty neat. A bunch of the clergy, the lay clergy, surrounded him (laughs) and carried him away to safety. And he was not to be found for five years. He was out with the monks. I can't imagine. That's what I mean about American Christianity. Can you imagine a pastor? Let's imagine the forces of the government coming against us and saying, sign this document that says you uh, don't believe in the nature of Christ. Now, that may not come, but we might be asked to sign a document that says... You think the government cares about that, necessarily? What do you mean? You mean, a, you, mean a, you have requirements for gender and preference and marriage? You, you won't allow such and such to be married in your goodbye tax exemption and goodbye pastor. You're going to jail. Um, so you sign that. You're banished. I mean, it just, that's what I mean about American Christianity. I don't think it has, I hope it, I hope it would have the backbone to stand against some of those things. And all of this is happening, again, not for political reasons, but for spiritual. I mean, who is behind this? No question. It is nothing less than a satanic attack on the very nature of Christ. But even great men, even great bishops succumbed to, to signing these documents. Uh, one that we mentioned last time by the name of Hoseus, who was a very strong uh, opponent of Arianism at the Council of Nicaea, actually in his old age, did sign this document. And ultimately, a high watermark mark against uh, the, the true doctrine of Christ came at a place called Sirmium, which rejected all the conclusions that the Council at Nicaea had reached, and so that Orthodox people called this the blasphemy at surium, Sirmium, Sirmium. Crazy. Theology. Athanasius believed that the doctor got a couple fill in the blanks. Athanas be- Athanasius believed that the doctrine of salvation was at stake. A reminder of these two words. I have them kind of bolded there because it shows you just the very small difference. You have homoousis. Homo means same. Usis means substance. So that means same substance. This is what the Council of Nicaea agreed that Christ was homoousis, but the opponents wanted to say homoi. See the difference there? It's oi, homoiusis, which doesn't mean same substance. It means similar substance. That's the difference, a letter. (laughs) A letter makes the difference. And Athanasius had said that since our depravity was so uh, total, and needed basically a new, a new creation or a regeneration, that it must be the creator who must recreate us. And so it must be God who comes in the flesh. Is why the incarnation is so critical. In 362 A.D., it was concluded that it was acceptable to re- refer to the Father, Son, and Spirit as the same substance, or as one substance. Really, what is happening in the late 300s is nothing less than a defense and an articulation of what doctrine? trinity absolutely the trinity and 362 i have the date there really that's what you the trinity is really coming together at this point thanks to these great men like athanasius who says when the soldiers are coming in his steadfast love endures forever and the clergy carries him away can you imagine would you guys carry me away to safety would you hide me in the wilderness somewhere would you take me to the up and protect me like the monks i mean you know what i mean i can't imagine that's why these guys are. There's going to be so many neat conversations to have in heaven with these people. Hymns were also being composed. I put a sheet in your in your bulletin. Do, you, do any of you know this hymn of the Father's love begotten? This is about the oldest hymn we sing. Um, it, it, let me play a little bit of it. I think you'll recognize. It. You probably heard it at Christmas time. Um, let's see if we can get it to work. You recognize this? This was a hymn that was written in like the late three eighties to uh, to justify and to teach in song really the the doctrine of Christ being fully man, fully God. Let's listen to one more verse, maybe. Uh, We'll sing this at Christmas together and be reminded of it's origin and of its context it's amazing uh, look at look at the first verse of the father's love begotten before the world's began to be he is alpha and omega right they're attributing him these names he is the sort the source and ending of the things that are and have been and that future years shall see i mean he's the source and end of all of those things Then the fourth verse is really bringing in the trinitarian doctrine isn't it christ to thee with God the Father and O Holy Ghost to thee. right? All three of these personage uh, demand hymns and chants and thanksgiving and unwearied praises and honor and glory and dominion and eternal victory. That, that was written in 380-something by some guy, not, uh, not a revered Uh, you know, like uh, not a revered hymn writer like we would have today, but probably written in a cave somewhere or written, I don't know, written in some, as he's thinking about this, I believe this so much that I'm willing to be banished or punished or killed for my belief. It's really incredibly moving to think about that. For me it is. It's just an unbelievable heritage that we have in these people who have have, uh, held on to these doctrines for us. Finally, at the Second Council, which gathered in Constantinople, in 381, ratified all this doctrine, but Athanasius was dead by then. Um, just other fascinating stories about him being uh, him being carried up the Nile River by compatriots, and uh, Julian, who was the emperor at that time, chasing him down and calling out to him in the dark. Like there's two. Apparently, there were two ships on the Nile, and the ship back here is calling out to this ship, and and they said, uh, "Hey, is that? Have you seen Athanasius?" And Athanasius is actually on that ship. And he called back to them. He says, yes, he is just ahead of you. Which is true. He is just ahead of you. If you hurry, you will overtake him. And they just passed by him. Athanasius is a pretty, pretty amazing character of history. I, again, he's not a guy who sat in a cathedral protected in luxury all his life, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, banished, threatened, right, soldiers gathering in him, yet he, he stuck to this uh, important doctrine. Anyone a remark, and then I will talk quickly about a bunch of other people before we move on. Anyone got a thought about this? Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. When I think of this, I, I don't like to I, – I totally agree – I I don't like to necessarily um, deride other people who don't do it exactly the way we do, but I will say this, that uh, a few years ago, I may have told you this, on Easter Sunday, a pastor of a very big megachurch, I think in Texas or Tennessee, to start their Easter service played, had their band play ACDC, Highway to Hell and back t- and and faced even backlash from people in his own community like what how is this appropriate and he supported it through he said well I p- we prayed we fasted we sought the lord's face and this is where he directed us okay and then you <coughs> compare it to something like this someone who wrote this under threat of punishment and banishment right the the the, the truth of this awesome doctrine i mean right the the church the church is I think it's reflective in what you're saying mom is that the church is not about us or for us or uh you know for our comfort or our pleasure or our entertainment everything we are doing today is designed to direct us onto god i bet you if athanasius was listening to us talk about him he would say stop talking about me and focus the attention on the glory of our great god and savior right and 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 that is that is our goal and intention and, and this is deep and, and thankfully, there are people who are writing, and we sing a lot of new stuff that is deep, um, and there is things being written. Sometimes you have to search for them a little bit more. Thanks for that. Any, any other quick things? We're going to have to go through these last ones in like five minutes, and that's okay. I, I was planning on that because Athanasius is our important guy today. We'll just say a few things about these other people. The great Cappadocians. Now, all these people are people who came behind Athanasius and also adhered to this, the truth. Several of these people, we have Macrina, we have Basil the Great, here we go again. Uh, we have Gregory of Nisa and Gregory of Nazianzus. And just a quick word about each one of them since our time is social. Sh- Macrina is a, is a lady. And uh, she is a fantastic uh, and remarkable figure uh, for many, many reasons. Um, she was 12 years old and her parents had arranged for her to marry someone. Can't imagine that. Um, <laughs> but that's the way the cultures were, picking someone out. And before the marriage, the guy died, and so she determined not to uh, marry anyone else. And, and the Catholics claim her as a nun um, and, and claim, you know, that, that her virginity is what made her, you know, so great. That, that's, uh, sadly, so many of these great saints have been uh, tainted by Roman Catholicism and, and their desire to make them saints and the patron saint of whatever. Um, but, but Macrina was one who really guided her family. Mac, if, if you want to put on your notes, here, here's the connection. Macrina, Basil, and Gregory of Nisa are brothers and sisters. Basil and Gregory are both men. They're, they're brothers to Macrina. Gregory of Nazianzus is a friend that they met in Athens when they were studying. But, but the three of them are, children, are all children of the same father who is also named Basil. Um, so Macrina, Basil, and Gregory are siblings. Gregory of Nyssa, they are all siblings. And it was really Macrina who... Uh, provided the spiritual um, leadership in the family when her father passed away. In fact, Basil the Great was, maybe this is why he was called the Great, I don't know, was becoming full of pride and and, and uh, loved luxury and loved pomp and loved people to proclaim himself, and Macrina corrected him on that. And Macrina actually became known as, quote, the teacher. She lived in monastical communities and people... A journey to her to learn uh, some of her strength and joy and her teaching. Just a, a great woman of God. Basil the Great founded a monastery for men. We're just going to say a quick word about these because they'll come into play next week as well. Gregory of Nyssa, another brother, uh, fought for these doctrin- doctrines. Gregory of Nazianzus. What's really interesting about him, and I find, him, I, f- I find myself very sympathetic to him, is he wrote much on the insecurity of being a pastor. He was a, He was a bishop and he wrote on his own insecurity about that, his own unworthiness of that. That struck a chord with me, Um, saying, saying it is so difficult, this is something he said, it is so difficult to be obedient to God, how much more difficult to lead others in obedience. There's a passage in Titus, I think it was, I was reading this week. It might be Titus or Timothy. It's one of the passages where it talks about the demands of pastoral leaders. And there's one place where it says, Wait, uh, you know what, I should, I should do more than just say it. Uh, let me see if I can track it down in the Timothys or Titus. It's in one of those places where um, it's 1 Timothy 3, 7, 6 and 7. It, this struck me, and I'll be a little transparent here. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with deceit. Con- talking about the demands of being a pastor or an elder. He must not be a recent convert or he must pu- puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he not, may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. If you were reading those two verses on your own, what, what observation might you make? It doesn't have to be my observation, but what observation might you make? Okay, has to have a good reputation. Whenever I look at Scripture, I look for things that are repeated Anything repeated in the passage? Okay. You have the snare of the devil, and you have the condemnation of the devil. Look who the devil's close to. He's mentioned twice there in his desire to bring down the pastor, or bring down the elder Doing some study on this because just just transparent, just like Gregory of Nazianzus says. Sometimes you feel so unworthy. Does does any, do any of you struggle with uh, guilt or insecurity or shame or sin? Right. I mean, if you don't, you have a problem. Right. You, we struggle with those things. We're forgiven by Christ, but but sometimes you just feel so unworthy. And, and, and here, here we have the devil being in Revelation the accuser of the brothers, wants us to be discouraged and down, and here we have him in First Timothy 3 attacking, and I think that may be something of what Gregory of Nazianzus was facing. And so he becomes very, ver- a very kindred spirit in some senses in that feeling that I share with him. It was at a council, and we'll say more about the councils next week, in Constantinople where they came to this conclusion. Uh, do I have that on the sheet? Yeah, okay, it, it's on the sheet for you. Put a big star by this because this is critical for us. This is great. This is a very positive thing. Thumbs up, big plus, star, good. They affirmed the doctrines of Nicaea again but also added that the same should be said about the Holy Spirit. That's wonderful, right? That's wonderful. What they're doing is they're saying, did I put it on the back? Yeah, okay, I, I put, star, look, turn to the back. I already put the stars on it for you. <laughs> uh, that they arrived at this conclusion. One Usia, right? Homo Usia, one substance, but in three hypostases, three persons. That is there, the definition of the Trinity that we still use today. We, they, they rejected the idea of three, what? No, they, they accepted that idea. Well, they rejected the idea of three gods. We reject the idea that there are three gods. There is one God. One substance in three persons. That's the mystery of the Trinity, which was secured, not secured, but, but outlined and protected for us at that council. Real quick and last, three more guys and we'll have to come back to these. Ambrose of Milan, John Chrysostom, and Jerome. Just mention briefly about each one. Uh, Ambrose of Milan, this is 373 or so, um, He wasn't even he was like the governor of the area and a bishop's seat was empty and there was a there was a contest to see who would get it and he said boy this could this could end up in a riot I better go and I better oversee this. So he got up to speak when tensions arose and as he spoke someone shouted, Hey, why don't you be the bishop? (laughs) And he did. He tried to escape by night on his horse. That's what I love about this stuff. This is so great. Can you imagine? Uh, we'd like you to come candidate to be our pastor Uh, and then no i'm going to escape by night on my horse because i don't want to be the pastor (laughs) but he eventually in a period of eight days became because he was just a a very young in the faith he became baptized and ordained as the bishop of milan and he felt a great responsibility to take on theological training which he did and he became one of the greatest theologians but he was also very pastoral here here's Here's the difference between theologian and pastoral. A theologian is someone who studies those doctrines, and they really become more academic, which is important. But a pastor has to take those theological points and somehow make them apply. And look at this quote from Ambrose regarding the Incarnation. Doesn't this apply pastorally to us? He became a small babe so that you could be fully grown. Perfect human beings. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes so you could be freed from the bonds of debt. He came to the manger to bring you to the altar. He was on the earth so that you might be in an, And that's a powerful quote in a sermon right there. Um, another inc- uh, just an incredible, uh, an- another thing about Ambrose, I have a couple dots there for us. Um, there was a time when a group called the Goths came in and, and uh, took hostage some people. Uh, and he had the church gold vessels melted down to purchase them out of ransom, and people were complaining him about that. And he said, you know, the church, uh, I, I, should, I should read this, uh, the, the church has gold not to store it, but to use it for those who have need. That's a, that's a great reminder. We, we are not here to hoard money or to hoard things, but to use it for others. Uh, he also preached very positively about inviting poor to our feasts rather than the rich who could just reward him. And there was a person who came to hear him speak, a person who had abandoned his mother's faith when he was uh, a youngster but heard this great uh, preacher speak on these great doctrines and he became a believer, and it was Augustine. Augustine is going to become the greatest theologian that the church has seen since Paul, and he became converted under the ministry of Ambrose. I mean, you read that little quote. This is a pastor you'd like to sit under, right? Um, And one final thought on Ambrose real quick. can't believe time has gone so quickly is that he also confronted sin the emperor theodosius had come to receive communion at his at his uh, church and he met him at the door saying stop a man such as you stained with sin whose hands are bathed in blood you are unworthy until you repent to enter this holy place and partake of communion that's not a good church growth strategy but biblical guy. John Chrysostom, he's known as the golden-tongued preacher. Chrysostom actually means golden tongue. That's all we really can say about that. I wish there was more, maybe next week. And Jerome, what is he known for? But translating the um, Hebrew scriptures into the, into the Latin, which was spoken at that time. We'll have to come to that next week. I, I hate to rush over that like that. And Jerome was kind of a... There's some negative things about him as well. But uh, we'll... we'll t- We'll talk more about that. There's some funny things, but we'll share that next week. But the, the application really is to, to see the conviction with which these men and women uh, fought for the doctrines of the faith. They were not seen as peripheral to them but of prime importance because once these doctrines uh, are tainted, then our whole belief system is screwed up and we have no idea how to be right with God. I appreciate so much the, uh, the time today. Derek, why don't you pray for us, please?